welcome to the Old Testament Reading Plan Podcast. I'm your host, Joel, and today we're focusing on Judges 18 through 21, along with Ruth 1 and 2. You can find and subscribe to this podcast by going through Apple Podcasts, Google Google Podcasts, and Spotify. All the links I've included in the show notes. And if questions come up for you during your reading, please feel free to ask them by going to bit.ly slash ask hyphen OT. That's B-I-T dot L-Y slash capital A lowercase S-K hyphen capital O capital T. When I was in high school, I spent some time in Germany on a foreign exchange trip. And during this trip, I learned a ton from this experience. One of the differences I noticed between Germany and America that still strikes me today is the lack of outwardly expressed national pride. When I was in Germany, A Euro soccer tournament was underway, and it was only in the context of soccer that I regularly saw German flags flying. I almost never saw them at any other time. And I mentioned this observation to somebody, I can't remember if it was a German or one of our American adults who was with us, and they told me, you know, Germans have historical evidence of the risks and dangers associated with a certain type of patriotism. Now, it isn't uncommon, I think, for folks to express a sort of pride based on their birthplace or the place they grew up. Uh, In fact, I still enjoy going back to Northern California. Although I've made my home elsewhere, there's something about it that feels good to me. It feels like a place that is familiar, a place that's home. It's the same with coming back to the U.S. after traveling abroad. There's a familiarity about the language, the way people interact, the culture, that all feels like, ah, like I can relax now. Of course, there's a danger here as well, because when I start to believe that what feels like home for me should feel like home to everyone, what feels like home to me is better than what feels like home to anyone else, well, the result is a sort of chauvinism or elitism or patriotism that blinds me to the imperfections of my home and also keeps me from being able and willing to learn from the really good ways that other people do work. Now, one of the narratives running throughout the Old Testament involves this tension of Israel being simultaneously closed off from and in opposition to their neighbors while also being willing to be a blessing to the world. Israel is called to have no other gods but Yahweh At the same time, though, they're called to be a model, a light to the nations. And in our scriptures this week, we're going to see that morality isn't tied down to a particular ethnicity or culture. Instead, morality can be found outside of Israel just as much as immorality can be found inside Israel. And like Germany, perhaps through these stories, we might learn to be somewhat suspicious of excessive pride in our way of being Christians. Instead, maybe we can be willing to replace that pride with a willingness to learn from others, whether it's others from different denominations, others even who practice different faiths, or even others who are hostile to our faith. So let's get into the text. We started this week continuing the story of Micah and the Levite that Micah hired to intercede for him, who to, to build a temple for him, like some idolatry stuff. He was the one who helped him create the ephod and the teraphim. But the beginning of this chapter actually begins elsewhere with the tribe of Dan. You might remember that the tribe of Dan struggled to occupy and hold their allotted portion of the promised land, and they sought land elsewhere. 
in this journey to find some alternative land, they stay at Micah's house and they recognize this Levite. Whether they knew the man or he just had some sort of accent, scripture doesn't say. Perhaps they thought, hey, this is rather handy to have a man of God around. So they ask him to inquire of God on their behalf. And I want to make a note here. This is all very irregular, especially when when looking back on this from the perspective of a, a, a people that has a temple, as the Israelites will have shortly, um, to have all of this... Uh, asking of God for a sign, uh, inquiring of God, kind of on your own, is very odd. So the Danites uh, listen to the guidance that uh, the Levite gives them, and they go up and they find good land. So then they go back. They get their army together, and they come back up. They stop on at Micah's place again with 600 of their armed friends. And when they take Micah's ephod and Micah's teraphim, um, they also take Micah's Levite. The, the Levite proves himself not to be motivated by religious piety, but instead by profit, by the possibility of being famous, notoriety. The Danites, after all, promise him, hey, you're going to be more important serving us as an entire tribe than you were just one man. And oh, by the way, maybe you should probably come with us because we have more swords sort of thing. They take uh, not only him, but the idols from Micah's house. And the author of Judges is careful not to offer any sort of indictment here. The author of Judges kind of keeps their opinions to, their sel- to themselves. Um, but it's clear from how the author of Judges emphasizes it a few times that there's this defenselessness of the people of Laish, uh, where the Danites are going to invade, that seems to resonate with the author, and, and that the Danites, Israelites, would go up and destroy this helpless people uh, may be a little concerning to him. The identity of the priest, which is held until the very end of the story, also seems important to the author. This is Jonathan, son of Gershom, son of Moses? Even just two generations away from Moses, the man of God, you've got Levites who are going it alone and who are making idols. No matter who you are, Israelite, Levite, even a descendant of Moses himself, you aren't automatically an ethical person. Ethics don't, uh, they, they don't follow ethnicity. That's not something that happens. And we see this also in the next story. And this next story is tied to the story of Micah and the Levite and, and the tribe of Dan by both of them share sort of an unethical Levite. And the next story, by the way, is incredibly violent and horrifying. There's sexual assault. There's dismemberment. There's all sorts of violence. We were reminded at the beginning of this story, almost apologetically, that in those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did as they saw fit. So this new Levite seems to have had a chummy relationship with his concubine's father, so much so that when the concubine leaves him uh, to return to her father's house, 
when the Levite comes to her father's house, he gives her back to the Levite and insists not only that the Levite take her back, but that they stay, they celebrate with him. And they celebrate for a few days, and each day they try to go, and each day the father keeps them there. And because of his insistence that they keep celebrating, when they end up leaving, they get a late start traveling toward Gibeah. And upon their arrival, the Benjamites of the town don't offer any hospitality. Instead, the, the Levite and his concubine need to stay with another sojourner, another resident alien, who is in the town coming from Ephraim. And this is where the story takes a dark turn, pulling liberally from the story of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19. Uh, there's lots and lots of turns of phrase that are used almost identically. However, in this story, no angels come to rescue the visitors to the town. No deliverance is given, no justice meted out to the violent criminals. In this story, women are allowed to be treated as disposable, and the Levite's concubine is seized by the Levite, taken forcibly and thrown out of the house, like a bone tossed to a group of ravenous dogs. There's no question that this is an abominable act. This is the sort of terrible, brutal sin that may well have uh, led to the Canaanites being displaced by the Israelites in the Promised Land. But it's important not to let the actions of the men of Gibeah, terrifying and, and horrible as they are, over, overshadow just the unthinkable pitilessness of the Levite toward his concubine. Nobody comes out of this story looking just or righteous. The Levite, instead of showing the slightest concern for his concubine, who he finds reaching desperately for the safety of the house, instead, simply the Levite simply says, Okay, let's go. Come on. And it's only after getting no response from her does he realize that she has died from the abuse the men of the town perpetuated on her. Instead of going from here and burying her respectfully and calling the elders of Israel to testify against the men of Gibeah, the Levite chops up her body and sends it to all of Israel. And from this, a civil war ensues. The entirety of Israel is enraged, as they should be, at the actions of Benjamin. And Benjamin, for their part, could have avoided this whole situation entirely by saying, hey, we agree with y'all, these wicked men deserve death. We'll turn them over for judgment. We'll join you in condemning them. However, they don't do this, perhaps preferring to believe that one of their own people wouldn't do such a thing. This is the temptation of chauvinism, tribalism, patriotism. When, when pastors cluster together around one of their own saying, hey, this guy's a pastor, or this, this woman's a pastor, there's no way they would do such a thing. Uh, they wouldn't, you must have misunderstood. You know, this is the, the national narrative around police officers as well, where sometimes police officers will close ranks and say, this person is one of our own, let us handle this person, instead of allowing for the public, allowing for the, the, the law to, to take its due course here. We tend to do this. We tend to hold up our people, our tribe, our community as infallible. And instead of realizing that even those members of our community can make terrible decisions, we prefer to believe that members of our community would never do something like that. By making our community untouchable, 
I wonder if, if we do that in order to make ourselves feel better about the community we participate in. In any event, ultimately, Benjamin uh, is the Israelites go up against Benjamin after losing a couple of skirmishes. Uh, they rout Benjamin in a similar manner to the Battle of Ai in Joshua 8, excuse me, the Battle of Ai. But there's a problem. Benjamin is still a tribe of Israel. Everyone who went to battle against Benjamin swore never to allow their daughters to marry a Benjaminite. Those men of Benjamin who remain, how are they to reproduce? The answer the Israelites come to isn't a very moral answer, not in the slightest. They get women from two sources. In neither case are the women consulted. One source is the people of Jabeth Gilead, who did not join the rest of Israel to fight the Benjaminites. And, and so the rest of Israel decides, well, they didn't come. We're going to treat them like deserters. They go and totally destroy the, the men of, of Jabeth Gilead. And the, the women left over, the women who had not known a man, are saved to be married to the Benjaminites. Another source they use is this coupling ceremony that seems to be something that happens at Shiloh. None of these last few chapters of the book of Judges, nothing in them really can honestly be considered moral behavior. Perhaps this is the reason that the book of Judges ends with the idea that in those days Israel had no king and everyone did as they saw fit. Certainly, the people of Israel are not the beacons of righteousness and of justice at this point. After the voluminous fog of questionable morality in Judges, Ruth is a welcome ray of sunshine. Ruth offers a, a sort of palate cleanser before plunging back into the political intrigue of Israel in the books of Samuel and Kings. Now, while the setting for the book is during the time of the Judges, it might not have been written down until the exile or, or even sometime after that. It's clearly written in older Hebrew, like uh, sort of like Old English, uh, when we try to read Shakespeare, there's that, that difference in tone, difference in rhythm. And it is written in older Hebrew for the most part, although there are, according to scholars, some anachronistic metaphors that occur in the book, uh, a small handful of them. With this in mind, uh, we may think of Ruth as having been an oral tradition passed down through the ages, but not composed until perhaps the time of the exile, or, or, or perhaps the time of Nehemiah, perhaps as a way of speaking about how intermarriage can actually be good. It's also one of the only places in scripture that we see Israel regularly observing every jot and tittle of the law. We have kinsman-redeemer laws. We have allowing the foreigner to glean the field laws, and so on and so forth. There isn't truly a bad character in Ruth. Each person is shades of good, and some are better than others, but each person is mostly good. So we begin by hearing about an Israelite man, Elimelech, and his wife, Naomi, traveling with their two sons to Moab to seek refuge from a famine. Now remember, Moab is a constant enemy of Israel, yet the political relationship between the countries is less important in the book of Ruth than the individuals and their relationships. The men in the family all die, 
And the women of the family, uh, not only Naomi, but also the, the two wives that Naomi and Elimelech's sons took, they're the only ones left, Naomi, Ruth, and Orpah. And so they need to figure out what are they going to do? So Naomi chooses to return to Israel, to Judah, to her ancestral home. Now, both daughters-in-law intend to accompany her and both express a desire to stay with her. She responds, you know, I can't give you a husband and you have no children. Wouldn't it be better to find a husband among your own people? And after she beseeches them, you know, maybe you should look among your own people. Orpah says, okay, and I'll always love you sort of thing. Whereas Ruth responds to Naomi with this beautiful idea of where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. This is an incredible statement of faith coming from a Moabite, somebody that Israel would have thought of as less than human. The, the, where Moab came from, you may remember, is from this strange relationship that Lot had with one of his daughters. Moab, uh, according to Israelite tradition, means from my father, that, that one of the daughters of Lot reproduced with her father. So the Moabites are kind of a stench to Israel. They don't like him. So for this statement of faith to come from a Moabite is simply incredible. So they go back to, to Bethlehem, to Judah, um, and, and Naomi is is beside herself with grief because life has been bitter to her. She calls herself Mara. And at this point, you know, Ruth is kind of looking for something to do. She's like, I, I need to find a way of getting food. I need to make sure that, that you know, I've, I've got opportunities. So Naomi suggests, well, why don't you go to the fields of Boaz? He's a pretty fair and righteous fella. He's someone who observes Torah. He's also part of my family, a kinsman on, on my husband's side, Naomi may have thought. And, and so Ruth takes advantage of this Israelite law that demands those who grow grain, those who are involved in agriculture, that they leave the edges of their fields. Like, like they don't go on through and take every part of their, of their field, every um, edible crop, that they leave some for the orphan, the widow, and the refugee, the migrant. Ruth is a widow and a migrant. And so she goes and, 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 and she gleans from the field. And, and Boaz shows himself to be a man of noble character, not only because he's following Torah, but, but also because he's taking care of those who are coming to glean from his fields, those who've done nothing to plant, but those who need the food. So Boaz, in fact, offers protection for this young Moabite Ruth, knowing that she's an easy target for maybe some of the less moral fellas who are working the fields or who are gleaning from the fields. Um, and, and, and instead gives her, gives her uh, this community of women that she can be a part of so that uh, she wouldn't have to fear for being alone, for possibly being taken advantage of. When she comes back to Naomi and she celebrates with Naomi, Naomi, I, I imagine, probably has this crafty grin on her face because 
she can see what's going on here, that Ruth uh, has found a, a place where she belongs, uh, that, that Ruth can continue to glean with these young women, that, that this, this Israelite, Boaz, this moral man, wants to show charity and love even to somebody from Moab. I think that this is something that is so important to take away from our scripture reading today, that we are capable of good and we are capable of great evil, uh, not because of who we follow, not because we're Christians, but because we're people. Christians and, and, and those who have Torah are not necessarily any better or any worse. Ethnicity and ethics are not tied together. And we're going to see more of the interactions between Boaz and Ruth the Moabite uh, in, in, in our next week's reading. Uh, that's all for Judges 18 through 21 and Ruth 1 and 2. Uh, next week, we're going, to be, we're going to be reading Ruth 3 and 4. And then we'll be going to 1 Samuel uh, uh, 1 through 4, I think. 1 through 4? 1 through 4. And in this, we're going to see how God provides even for the foreigner, how God provides even for uh, the the woman who is barren. Uh, We'll see the people of Israel as they struggle to figure out how to follow God in this promised land. May God bless you in your reading of scripture.